Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore Major. And in this episode, we're going to be concluding Arthur Ransom's Rakundra's First Cruise. We're on chapter 25, and we'll be reading that and the appendix, which is an in-depth description of Rakundra. Well, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And there for $5 a month, you can not only support the podcast, but get access to exclusive Patreon-only book readings. Now on with the story. Chapter 25. Verda to Riga. The men of Runo were so far right that it blew hard during the night, though the storm they had expected was reserved for us on the night after. In the morning of September the 25th at 8 o'clock, the barometer was at 29.4, and at 10 was half a point higher. For the first time for a fortnight, it had been for 48 hours comparatively steady, and not on the upward or downward grade of a steep switchback. The wind was northwest. The little Russian steamer, which, going south like ourselves, had waited by Quivast all the previous day, was getting our anchor. I had a feeling that now was our chance, and that we had better take it before, as it were, the equinox got his second wind. What about sailing? said I to the ancient mariner, who was on the pier, sheltering behind the woodpile and looking through the glasses at the little steamer. We can but try, said he. And with that we began casting off the spider's web of stout warps with which we had been keeping Rakundra quiet during the last five days of mixed gales. Ten minutes later, she was swinging to her anchor. Ten minutes after that, we had the sails up and everything lashed down on deck and made snug below. And at 10.45, we had got out our anchor and were beating out into the sound under bright sunshine and a blue sky with racing clouds, the outlines of which encouraged us by being very much softer than the oily, knife-edged affairs of the last few days. At a quarter past eleven, we were close to the mouth of the sound. Paternoster Light on Viralade Island, a compact little hummock with rocks all round it and rock-like haystacks on the lowland behind it, bore west by south. We were level with the second Verda buoy. The open sea was before us, and I set our course due south which should give us a sight of Runo Lighthouse to help us in the night. Rakundra was going a grand pace, and our faith in the men of Runo grew stronger every minute. At one o'clock, we sighted a steamer astern, coming out of the sound and going south. She passed us several miles to eastward, very much disquieting the ancient, who had never really trusted our compass after we had had its natural errors adjusted at Helsingfors. She'll be setting her course straight, and with her leaving us to west like that, we shall be passing Runo on the wrong side and getting among those shoals. I had a hard job to persuade him that the steamer might have her course and we might have ours, and both of us be right. I showed him the English mine chart, with its swept channel for big ships far to eastward, close by Kino Island, and explained that I wanted to keep well away from Kino and its rocks, and in the middle of the gulf, so as to have a freer choice in case the wind should shift again. Also, the steamer's course would actually be longer than our own. He professed himself satisfied, but was not, until 6.15 in the afternoon, when, while he and the cook were below and I was at the tiller, I saw something on the starboard bow that could not be a ship, and was, no, yes, actually was Runo Lighthouse. The lighthouse bore southwest by west. I could not keep the triumph out of my voice as I shouted down the companionway, Runo in sight. 
But that unbelieving ancient, when he came hurriedly up, stared over the port bow the moment his head was above the level of the deck, showing clearly what he had expected. "'Starboard bow,' said I, and pretty broad. "'By gum, you were right,' said the ancient, and the quarrel ended. More serious matters were on hand. The Kundra was moving much too fast. The men of Runo had been right about the coming gale, but had expected it a day too soon, and, even if we continued at the pace we were now going, racing in a bath of foam, we should, I calculated, be on the bar of Dvina about one in the morning. Now, leading lights are delightful things to steer by, and in most circumstances a well-lit harbour is easier for a stranger by night than by day. But the entrance to the Dvina child's play in ordinary weather is a most tricky business with northerly winds. I quote from the Baltic pilot, On the shoals which are steep too, there is a heavy sea during northerly gales, and great difficulty would be experienced in clearing them. Further, there is a strong current across the entrance, and also a current from the river, the total result being a thoroughly unpleasant bit of work for a little ship. On going out, we had noticed an unlucky schooner which had failed to clear those shoals, and had been flung ashore on the western side of the river mouth. Today, I knew that the current would be setting the other way, but I had no sort of wish to see Rakundra swept on either side of the entrance to her home port at the end of her first cruise, and preferred to have daylight so as to be able to better judge the sea and the current, and to decide in time whether to keep the sea or run in. Accordingly, we brought Rakundra to the wind and reefed her, reefed her relentlessly. It is a well-known fact that, while running before it, you do not feel the wind. It was not until we stopped there, a dozen miles off Runo, and brought Rakundra up to face it, that we knew how strong the wind had grown. We took in both the deep reefs in the mainsail, turning it into a thing scarcely bigger than an afternoon tea cloth, and then stripped her of her mizzen. We left the staysail standing, arguing that it would not do much pulling with the wind aft, and yet would perhaps hold a little wind in the troughs of the waves, even if a shortened mainsail would be wholly becalmed. Further, it would be of extreme usefulness if, from some unpleasing accident, we should happen to broach too. When all was done, I set a new course, south by east, to bring us to the head of the gulf, when we should sight the Riga lights a little on our port bow. That would give us something in hand for dealing with the current. Rough and ready navigation, you experts say, but it worked out admirably in practice. We then settled down for the night. Settled down is perhaps not quite the phrase to use, for nothing could be very settled in such a sea as had got up. The cook, for the first time in the whole voyage, was in a state of collapse, due partly to the fumes of the raw tobacco drying over the cabin lamp. The waves were so steep that the actual pitching of the ship, the lift and fall, not the rolling, was too much for the primus gimbals. Nothing would stay on them, and Rakundra seemed to be moving almost as fast as before we reefed her. The ancient munched cheese, I swallowed raw eggs, and Rakundra rushed along over a dark sea with breaking waves, the last of a stormy sunset in the west, on a green metallic patch of which we could just see the Runo lighthouse and the topmost trees of the island. Behind us, in the north, were patches of starlight which, as we watched them, were swept into blackness, and then everything went dark in a sudden torrent of rain. Then again, 
were patches of starlight with huge clouds chasing small ones, and then a great mass that seemed suddenly to swell out till the whole sky was gone and the hailstones rattled on the decks. It was a weird, exciting night, but not a happy one, for we knew that the worst was before us, that we were running for a lee shore, that any mistakes would be disastrous, and that instead of comfortably getting our difficulties behind us, we were approaching them with every yard of Recundra's foaming path. I caught myself unashamedly regretting that we had even tried this game so late in the autumn, especially during the autumn. The words of that pessimist Baltic pilot glowed dully before me, and I asked myself, half angrily, why on earth I had not been content to fish for pike in England and to leave the Baltic to better man. But then, as always, Rakundra comforted me. She ran so steadily, steered so easily, was so much less flustered than her master and owner when, glancing back, he saw the horizon, apparently only a few yards off, rise astern like a white-topped mountain, up and up and up and nearer and nearer till it seemed that it must overwhelm her in its majestic rush. But Rakundra kept quietly on her path, rose as the huge wave reached her, dropped down its mighty back and was running still while the horizon heaved itself again behind her for another effort. Rakundra, I say, comforted me. She seemed to have no doubts at all about what she could do or couldn't, and I found myself slowly coming to share her confidence. I sat with the tiller wedged between my left arm and my body, the hands thrust into the opposite sleeve of my oilskins on account of the exceeding cold. The ancient crouched halfway down the companionway and disliked talking. At regular intervals, we changed places, and he who was off duty sheltered in the companionway and tried to smoke the raw tobacco of the Verda lighthouse keeper, a kindly gift, but a poor substitute for cut plug. The lamps, of course, refused to burn, so we had the riding light in the companionway and warmed our frozen hands on it when we left the tiller. As the night went on, we began taking more and more frequent glances over the side with an electric torch on the foaming water to see how fast Rakundra was going. She was going much too fast. We began to feel a special hatred of the dark. It was as if someone had maliciously put the light out, and with finger ready was keeping it out for our annoyance. The night seemed unending, and then at three o'clock we saw unmistakably the glow of Riga lights on our port bow. That, of course, was just where they should have been, but we should have preferred to see them an hour or two later. Then they disappeared, leaving us to suppose that we were running into thick weather, when they would not be seen at all, and we should be in worse case. Half an hour later, we saw them again, and after that never wholly lost them. They are supposed to be visible 25 miles off. We held on, with redoubled impatience, watching the eastern sky for the faintest promise of light. Imperceptibly, even to us watchers, there came a difference in the darkness. The horizon on the port side was further away. On that side, one could actually see the waves and the water that had been black as the night, except for its white splashes, and was now the colour of a pewter mug. Sometime before that, we had sighted the light boy ten miles out from Riga, and had had a pretty sharp demonstration of the strength of the current near the coast. 
we had, a little foolishly, made our course slightly more easterly on seeing the Riga high light. When we sighted the boy, the ancient was at the tiller. I asked him how it bore. South by east. He steered straight for it, keeping the boat's nose on it whenever the waves let us see it. Before we reached it, I asked him again how it was bearing. He replied, Southwest by west. It is what is known in these parts as a howling boy, and announces its opinion of its uncomfortable position by a long-drawn cry between a groan and a whistle as it lifts and falls in the waves. As we passed it, after thus learning what sort of a current we had to contend with, this melancholy noise expressed our own feelings so perfectly that we had no need for words. I decided to keep Rakundra heading in such a way that a line between the howling boy's flashing light and the light from Riga should be to east of us, and to abandon the idea of getting in the moment we should find ourselves unable to keep on the right side of this imaginary line. After half an hour's rather anxious watching, we were pretty well assured that we could do it, and when at last it grew light, just before we reached the second buoy, which is two miles out from the mouth of the river, we were confident of being able to stem the current and get in if it should not be reinforced by some particular malice of the waves. These, of course, were much steeper as we approached the bar, and we saw with some trepidation that three steamships were waiting outside, the pilot having evidently refused to come out during the night. Land was, of course, visible now, alike to east and west. We could see Riga town and the white tower of the lighthouse, like a stick covered with hoarfrost in the grey, cold morning. Then there was the beacon on the eastern mole, and as we came nearer we saw the wrecked schooner that we had noticed on our way out, and the furious white breakers storming the moles and charging angrily up the shores on either side of the entrance. Still, just as we passed the second buoy with its green light already blinking palely in the new daylight, we saw smoke in the mouth of the river, and then the pilot tug coming out. We saw her and lost her, saw her and lost her in the waves as we approached. We passed her close by as she went to meet the steamers. She was sometimes literally half out of the water, and then, smashing down into a meeting wave, ceased to be a black tug, but became a single splash, higher than her own funnel top, like the splash of a huge shell hitting the water horizontally. From her we got some sort of an idea of what Rakundra must be looking like, though that stout little ship running with the wind was making much better weather of it than the tug. Rakundra was steering easily and took only a few slight splashes of water over her stern. I do verily believe that there is nothing to beat the sharp-ended Scandinavian stern for running in a seaway, as she raced one huge wave after another toward the river mouth. One mountain after another came up behind her, seemed for a moment to carry her upon its grinding, foaming crest, and left her to be carried forward by the next, while she, good little thing, was doing her best herself. And now we were already in the narrow lane of spar boys leading over the bar. Could she keep in it? Why, certainly she could, though the rollers were now disturbed by ugly, pyramidal, angry waves that rushed across them as if to beat her from her course. But Rakundra, demure, determined, shouldered them good-temperedly aside and held on. Almost before we knew it, we were across the bar and in the entrance, watching with open mouths the tiny boats of the fishermen, labouring with their nets in the huge swell that came in from the sea. A northerly storm brings the fish to Davina, 
and next day the market was full of big salmon, so that the fishermen were well rewarded for their work. But Rakundra is a lucky little ship. The night before, another boat, bigger than she, had tried to make the entrance and had failed, and had been smashed to pieces in a few minutes on the eastern side of the river mouth. This we learnt from the customs officials who, while congratulating us on getting in, now set about making our homecoming unpleasant. Perhaps if we had been less tired and hungry, their red tape cobwebs, from which on going out we had been so happily excused, would not have annoyed us so much. And afterwards, I felt inclined to forgive them, when I learnt that they had reason to believe that during the summer, people had made use for smuggling of the privileges given by a yacht flag. Still, we were not smugglers, and at the time were very angry indeed. We had intended to sail straight up the river to be cleared in the Mulgraven at the same custom station where we had been cleared when outward bound. This, however, did not suit the officials at the Davina mouth, and they behaved as if they had been told to make things difficult for a little ships. They made us turn aside and anchor in the winter harbour, then they nearly smashed our sides with a big customs house tug. Then they made me row back to their office, and I was near being swamped in Rakundra's cockle-shell dinghy after Rakundra herself had carried me so well. Then they said that, after all, we might proceed directly to the yacht club with an excise man in charge on board, and wait there until they had sent an official from Riga. I rowed back very sulkily to the winter harbour, where we had breakfast, and served out a tot of rum to the elderly man who was now our jailer. Then, under the mainsail, we tacked out of the harbour, and had a glorious run up the river, where were many sailing vessels, schooners, ketchers, and fine barkentine, waiting for better weather and a favourable wind. We reached through the Mulgrab, and past the little yellow customs house, past the now vacant berth where the Baltabor had been when we borrowed the lead, and carefully through the narrow channel into the Stintsey. In smooth water, and with the wind aft, Rakundra slid easily homewards, past the well-known landmarks, the old white boat high up on the eastern shore, the promontory of dark pine trees on the western, and at half-past twelve on September the 26th, rounded into the little sheltered harbour, where, five weeks earlier, the dallying carpenters had been expelled from her, and she had taken in stores before starting on her cruise. Three hours later, a customs officer and a policeman arrived, and, crowning idiocy, they were the very same men who had passed us out, and had now had to walk the whole way from the Mulgraben here, when I had myself proposed to anchor at their door and be cleared on the spot. They were no less full of wrath than I, and as our papers were in order, and we had drunk and eaten and smoked everything on board, and so had nothing to declare, formalities were quickly over. The ensign hauled down, and Rakundra was officially at home to lay up for the winter. The End Appendix A Description of Rakundra Rakundra is nine metres over all, something under thirty feet long. She is three and a half metres in beam, about twelve feet. She draws three feet six inches without her centreboard, and seven feet six inches when the centreboard is down. Her enormous beam is balanced by her shallowness, and though for a yacht it seems excessive, thoroughly justified itself in her comfort and stiffness. She has a staysail, mainsail and mizzen, and for special occasions a storm staysail, a balloon staysail, a small square sail, much too small, a trysail and a mizzen staysail. 
she could easily carry a very much greater area of canvas, but for convenience, in single-handed sailing, she has no bowsprit, and the end of the mizzen boom can be reached from the deck. She is very heavily built and carries no inside ballast. Her centreboard is of oak. She has a three and a half ton iron keel so broad that she will rest comfortably upon it when taking the mud and deep enough to enable us to do without the centreboard altogether except when squeezing her up against the wind. Give her a point or two free and a good wind and her drift, though more than that of a deep keel yacht, is much less than that of the coasting schooners common in the Baltic. With the centreboard down, she is extremely handy and proved herself so by coming successfully through the narrow Nuke channel with the wind in her face, a feat which the local vessels do not attempt. But the chief glory of Rakundra is her cabin. The local yachtsmen, accustomed to the slim figures of racing yachts, jeered at Rakundra's beam and weight, but one and all, when they came aboard her, ducked through the companionway and stood up again inside that spacious cabin, agreed that there was something to be said for such a boat. And as for their wives, they said frankly that such a cabin made a boat worth having, and their own boats, which had seemed comfortable enough hitherto, turned into mere uncomfortable rabbit hutches. Rakundra's cabin is a place where a man can live, and work as comfortably and twice as pleasantly as in any room ashore. I lived in it for two months on end, and if this were a temperate climate, and the harbour were not a solid block of ice in winter, so that all yachts are hauled out and kept in a shed for half the year, I should be living in it still. Not only can one stand up in Rakundra's cabin, but one can walk about there, and that without interfering with anyone who might be sitting at the writing table, which is a yard square. In the middle of the cabin is a folding table, four feet by three, supported by the centreboard case, and so broad is the floor that you can sit at that table and never find the case in the way of your toes. The bunks are wider than is usual, yet behind and above each bunk are two deep cupboards, with between them a deep open space divided by a shelf, used on the port side for books and on the starboard side for crockery. Under the bunks is storage for bottles. Under the flooring on the wide flat keel is storage for condensed milk and tinned food. Behind the bunks, between them and the planking below the cupboards and the bookshelves is further storage room. Rakundra was designed as a boat on which it should be possible to work and as a floating study or office I think it would be difficult to improve upon her. The writing table is forward of the port bunk and a lettish workman made me an admirable little three-legged stool which, when the ship is underway, stows under the table. Above and behind the ample field of the table is a deep cupboard and a bookcase of a height to take the nautical almanac, the Admiralty pilots, Dixon Kemp and Norrie's inevitable epitome and tables. Another long shelf is to be put up along the bulkhead that divides the cabin from the forecastle. Under the shelf for nautical books is a shallow drawer where I keep a set of pocket tools, nails, screws and such things. Under the writing table is a big chart drawer, where I keep the charts immediately in use, writing and drawing materials, parallel rulers, protractors, surveying compass, stopwatch and other small gear. By the end of this is a long narrow drawer, used for odds and ends, and underneath that is a special cupboard made to take my portable typewriter. On the starboard side, opposite the table, is space for a stove, which, however, on this cruise, we used for stowing spare mattresses. Behind it are deep cupboards with low combings to prevent things slipping. 
Here were empty portmanteau, sea boots and a watertight box for photographic material. The door into the forecastle is on this side, so that it's possible to go through even when someone is sitting at the writing table. In the forecastle is one full-length comfortable bunk on the port side. On the starboard side, there are big cupboards instead of a second bunk. These were used for ship's stores, such as blocks and carpenters' tools, shackles and the rest. A seat is fixed close by the mainmast, to a big central cupboard which is the full height of the forecastle from deck to floor, and was used for oilskins and clothes. In the forecastle, we stowed warps, spare anchor, tins of kerosene, one of the water barrels and sails. This left small room for the ancient mariner, but as he said, there was room to lie and sleep, and room to sit and smoke, and what does any man want with more? The main cabin is the general living room. As you come out of the cabin into the companionway, you find on either hand a cupboard from deck to floor. On the starboard side is a simple and efficient closet, and after that, under the deck, a big space used for all the engineering tools, lubricating oils and grease. On the port side is the galley, with room for three primus stoves, although I am fitting a Clyde cooker. One of the stoves is in heavy iron gimbals for use when underway. Behind this is a shelf and rack for cooking things, and aft, under the deck, a second water barrel. The engine, a heavy oil, hot bulb Swedish engine, burning kerosene, we have no benzene on the ship, is under the self-draining steering well. It is completely covered when not in use by a wooden case, contrived to provide steps up on deck. The case takes to pieces, but can be fixed with absolute rigidity so that people who have visited Recundra have asked on going away what was the purpose of the reversing lever at the side of the companionway within reach of the steering well, never having suspected that we had an engine on board. For all the good we got of it during the first cruise, we might just as well have had no engine. But next year I hope to take the engine seriously and learn the open sesame that will set it miraculously to work. The oil reservoir is in the extreme stern and is filled from the deck. The companionway can be completely covered in by a folding and sliding lid over which we still have a canvas cover. The raised wall of the cabin is carried completely round companion, mizzenmast and steering well so that there is plenty of room inside this combing for a man to lie full length. In summer, this would be a most desirable place to sleep, and even on this autumn cruise, during our days of fine weather, we put one of the spare mattresses there, and anyone who was not busy with something else reclined there, smoked, dozed, read or bothered the steersman with irrelevant conversation. The steering well itself gives room for two people. In front of it, immediately aft of the mizzenmast, is the binnacle, and under the deck, between companionway and steering well, is a cupboard for riding light, binoculars, foghorn, etc. The main sheet, mizzen sheet, backstays and staysail sheets are all cleated within easy reach of the steersman, who can do everything but reef without leaving his place. Owing to the height of the narrow mainsail, inevitable in a catch, the gaff tends to swing too far forward, so I have a vang, which also serves as a downhaul, fastened to the peak and cleated, when in use, close by the mizzenmast. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing. 
That's patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Well, that's all from the Mariner's Library today, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>